You're listening to Getting Lit with Linda Mora, the podcast where we welcome you to get lit. Canadian lit, that is. Join Linda as she talks about authors in Canada and sometimes with them, using her expertise to shed some light on recent and not-so-recent writers. And now, get ready for Getting Lit with Linda. Hi, this is Linda Mora, the writer and host of Getting Lit with Linda. I have a special guest today to discuss with me the adaptation of Canadian novels to the screen. Not a little inspired by Sarah Pauly's recent win for her adaptation of Miriam Taves' Women Talking. That guest today is Bill Antoniou. Bill is a Toronto theatre actor and playwright who currently hosts the podcast Bad Gay Movies, although he's also the host of My Criterions, a podcast, by the way, I particularly love. He returned to university as a mature student at 27 and earned an honor specialist BA at the University of Toronto, where, incidentally, I did my undergrad degree. And while he focused on Victorian literature, just like I did, he also studied Canadian literature, and that's where he was first introduced to Michael Andache's The English Patient one of the novels we actually focus on in this episode. He also let me know that his degree is currently in saran wrap and lives in his mother's dining room while he's made to eat in the kitchen. Here's my conversation with Bill Antonio. Hi, Bill. Welcome to Getting Lit with Linda. Thank you very much for having me. This is such a pleasure. It's such an honor to have you. I'm a huge fan of your podcast. So oh, I've, or- wow. I've already told listeners about it, so they'll know where to go and find you after this episode is over. Oh, thank you. That's wonderful. So now, Bill, I'm going to confide in you because we're friends. I'm going to start by mm-hmm. saying that I might be a little groggy today. <laughs> oh, I was cat sitting for a friend and I was up early this morning because the cat decided that four o'clock was a reasonable hour <laughs> which to wake. It was it was rocking and rolling, let me tell you. So I'm jacked up in about five espressos right now. What a wild, wild life you lead, Linda. <laughs> how do you how do you even show your face in good society after a night like that? <laughs> So you and I had a had a discussion earlier about film adaptation of Canadian and Indigenous novels, and that's why we've come together today on the podcast. So I want us to discuss Indigenous novels and Canadian novels and their adaptations. And when we initially had that discussion, we came up with this huge list. So I, I want our listeners to know, first of all, that there are a plethora of films out there that have actually undertaken to adapt Canadian and Indigenous work. Yeah, they're all produced by Robert Lantos, yeah. Is that true? No. <laughs> He's done a lot of them. He's done a lot of the big prestige ones. Yeah. Can you list for our listeners, which ones has he done? The first one that comes to mind is Fugitive Pieces. And uh, Michael's. And actually, and yeah, and one of the, actually one of the films we're talking about today, I believe is one of his productions. Well, we'll check that when we get to it, but... Fugitive yeah. Pieces and Michael's one of my top favorites. I think top five. Yeah. Room by Emma Donahue was another one that we had t- yeah. talked about. I, again, I um, love both the novel and the film. Indian Horse by the Anishinaabe writer Richard Wagamese. Mm-hmm. The Black Robe by Canadian author Brianne Moore. And Monkey Beach by the Heisla Heltzuk writer Eden Robinson. Um, French Exit by Patrick DeWitt. 
And of course, we're not going to forget Sarah Pauly, who, of course, just won the award for the adaptation of Women Talking by Miriam Taves. But she also directed She Went Away, which was based on a story by Alice Munro. Yes, which she was also nominated for an Academy Award for writing back in uh, 2007. Oh, your, your memory is perfect. I'm going to have another mm. swig of my coffee so I can try to keep up. It should also be mentioned, most of these novels you've mentioned, I've maybe seen the film adaptations. I haven't read most of them, which is why they got sort of selected <laughs> out of the conversation. Yeah. yeah, I have a lot of catching up to do. As do I. I've seen most of the, the movies. I've read most of the books. I mm. have actually not done the DeWitt one, which was recommended by my co-producer Marco Timpano. So I will read the novel and see the movie once this episode is done. Right. So we don't even have an exhaustive list. That's just no. a selection. But for now, we did end up picking two with a possible third. And so I'll hand the envelope to you to make the announcement, Bill. <laughs> Oh, thank you. Well, and the winner is The English Patient by Michael Ondaatje, uh, adapted to cinema by Anthony Minghella in 1996. And uh, we also talked about Barney's Version by Mordecai Richler, uh, adapted to film in 2010 by, oh my goodness, now I can't remember the director's name. And they're both, you know, novels that I've read, in, in both cases studied, actually. And then um, for honorable mention, we also talked about Life of Pi by Jan Martel, although I have not read that novel. I have only seen the film. So you're going to have to fill in that side of that if we do Excellent. talk about that. I did not have time to read that book since we set this date up last week because I'm no longer a university student and I don't read books that quickly anymore, if, if I can read them at all. Yeah. Um, but The English Patient, I decided, would take precedent because um, not only is this one of my favorite films and a book that I've read, I believe, twice, uh, <laughs> I, I also wrote an essay on adapting that book. Way back in when I was a slip of a 33-year-old as a part-time mature student Ooh. at U of T. And I got an A-plus on it, so I decided to unearth it and, uh, and, and, bring, and, and highlight a few things from it in, in order to remind myself what I even wrote, because I don't think I've read that essay since I, since I handed it in and, and got an A-plus. Did I mention that? <laughs> from none other than the venerated Mr. Uh, Professor Sam Selecki, who oh, yeah. uh, is one of the highlights of my experience at U of T, a, a wonderful, wonderful man. And he gave me two A pluses <laughs> on both my essays, just so you know. I come here with only that rec- with only that qualification, but it's a big one. You've earned your stripes. <laughs> I've earned my stripes, yeah. He was also a huge film fan. He wrote a great book about Francois Truffaut that he and I talked about quite a bit as well. He was working on it while, while he taught me. So. Wonderful. So you do have a kind of connection, I know, to that particular novel and to the film. I thought it was interesting. I, had, I was studying in the skin of a lion when The English Patient came out as a film in 1992. And I was writing a paper about In the Skin of a Lion rather than The English Patient. That said, I, don't th- I haven't read that one yet. I've we did the English Patient and Running in the Family. We did both of those. Well, there's a connection between In the Skin of a Lion and the English Patient because some of the characters in In the Skin of a Lion actually reappear in the English Patient. That's oh. just a little kind of bit oh. of trivia for everyone. Why mm-hmm. don't you start by telling? everyone a little bit about the book if you feel comfortable doing that the plot i am you know when you actually look at the bare bones of the plots between film and novel they're not all that different which is that they do comprise mainly the experiences of these four characters uh jeffrey and Catherine are the uh the doomed lovers and hannah and kip are 
the not so doomed lovers. <laughs> uh, Hannah is a nurse who's taking care of this possibly English patient after he has been injured in an airplane mm. crash. And uh, Kip is the bomb explosives expert that she meets. And and then through taking care of this patient, she finds out about his past, his adventures in the desert, his love affair with this married woman. Um, it's a matter of how they change the focus in the film mm. as to who takes precedence. And main and also the the character of Caravaggio, yes, uh, played in the film by Willem Dafoe. His his reason for being there is different in the film. And then the ending is very very different because at the end of the film, Kip, who has been the focus of this novel, and who has sort of been contending with his willingness or not willingness to um, play the colonial mm. game in terms mm. of uh, the, the mentorship that he has with a character who's cut out of the film. Um, then decides to give up on any notion of fitting in with the Western world when he finds out about the Hiroshima bomb and it sort of gives him this political awakening. Mm. And that's all done away with in in the film film adaptation, in part because that film is produced by Saul Zantz, who, among other things, is I think the only producer who won a Best Picture Oscar in three consecutive decades. He, huh. uh, he won for uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and then Amadeus and then The English Patient. No kidding. Uh, but he also said, I was there during the war and we didn't really talk about Hiroshima. That happened much later. That was not, that was not, he didn't, he didn't buy that that was something that would happen. Uh, and so he was in support of uh, Mingela's rewriting the the end of the story. Ah, uh, so that's what happened in the... Mm-hmm. I think there was, a, there was quite a bit of speculation about why the film had changed its focus in this particular way. Well, there's certainly a lot of opinions about it, and I unearthed many of them when I wrote my, may I say, A-plus <laughs> level essay. Third time, uh, third time. <laughs> yeah. Um, Looking back on my paper, I relied a lot on David Thompson's rave review of the film, but there was a lot of criticism from two writers named Susan, who basically talked about, what were their names? I have, of course, I don't have my notes in order. Susan Hawkins, Susan Danielson. Mingela erases the geopolitical stakes at issue in Michael Andache's novel and instead nostalgically celebrates Western imperial adventures in the African desert. And that Kip's political awakening, they write, is replaced with the reassuringly familiar trope of male friendship. So there's a lot of criticism about a a very um, Eastern focus in the novel being turned into what is often referred to as an Orientalist perspective Mm -hmm. in the film, which is a very common film habit of prestige, especially period movies, to basically have white people in in quote-unquote foreign climates basically mm-hmm. um in, in this case the english patients working as a cartographer in the north african desert mm. well let's talk a little bit about the kind of that change in focus and you're reading other people's reviews about it so far mm-hmm. what was your opinion about the adaptation well i saw the film first oh that's um, interesting uh, that makes a difference yeah yeah, my sister had not. My sister had done it in the other in the other direction. So it would be interesting to find out if if this struck her. But I saw the film first, so it wasn't until I read the novel that I even noticed how different it was and what a different impression the novel leaves in terms of the fact that Kip is so mm. prevalent. But aside from however I feel about um, changing perspectives to suit to, to favor Western points of view, which has a lot to do with the economics of cinema. Mm. Um, just from a storytelling perspective, what he also does in solidifying character motivations and narratives is just to basically fall in line with 
what is often called the classic Hollywood filmmaking style. Which is? Well, the actual classic Hollywood filmmaking style is basically a character's pursuit of their uh, career goals in tandem with pursuit of a heterosexual romance, mm-hmm. um, which both of which play into the novel. But in this case, it's also that, you know, Caravaggio in the novel, he's just a friend of Hannah's father or her mother's boyfriend, something like that. And that's why mm-hmm. he's there. In the movie, he's he's a stranger to her, but he's there because the English patient who who actually is given more of a solid identity in the film Mm. is, is connected to his past, to his being tortured in during the war because it was the English patient who had betrayed him. So it's all about everything in the film has to be there for a reason. It can't just be there. It can't just be a brushstroke. Everything serves to unravel a narrative knot, which is not the case in the novel, especially in the case of Andace, who writes these very lyrical yeah, and poetic um, narratives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's been a while since I've seen the film, so I hadn't remembered that feature of the film. It's a film I've seen more times than I can count. Why? Uh, and, uh, Why? Well, I am secretly a hopeless romantic, and I think this movie does romance better than than many other films I've seen, particularly in the way that it gets away with a very arch sense of romance. You have dialogue like him saying things like, when you leave here, you should forget me. Or um, every night I plucked out my heart, but in the morning it had grown full again. And, you know, you imagine bad actors saying this and it's just the worst drivel, but something about Rafe finds is, especially because this is him at peak hotness as well. Although if you want to see him more naked, you can watch Robert Lantosh's production of Sunshine. Uh, if you want to sit through three hours of like a Jewish family's destruction in Europe, but also see Ruff, Refines Naked. And then you have someone like uh, Kristen Scott Thomas, who is... Oh, she's so amazing. I mean, if I was forced to choose to be anyone else in the world, I would ho- hopefully still choose to be Agreed. me. But if you forced me to pick someone else, it would be Kristen Scott Thomas. Because she's just got it all. And as one review, reviewer she says, does. she manages yeah, to make intelligence erotic. And so because the two of them are... So, and, and Juliette Binoche gives a world-class performance, a very, very, very deserving Oscar-winning performance. And so because these people are so good at what they do, everything that should be ridiculous about this movie works. Plus, I grew up in the era of of prestige heritage pictures. So I love a good period piece. I love the photography. And I just love the way this, um, they call it a very intimate epic. I love the way that mm. it has such private, small, beautiful, sexy moments while playing against this vast backdrop of politics and history. It's just its just a glorious movie. And it's also, um, some people find depressing, sad, scary movies hard mm. to watch over and over again. I find it very cathartic it, when it's done as well as this. I think... Her dying alone in the cave at the end, spoiler alert, is one of the most upsetting things I've ever seen in the film. I th- it's, I was so distressed. Yeah. I was so distressed. Just the idea yeah. of her sitting there as the light dies. I mean, I thought about that for days after I saw this film and I showed it to my parents after and they, they were, my mom said she was up all night. Like they were just very upset by that. Um, and mm-hmm. I, I love that it does that well, because as you know, I watch a lot of movies and the more you watch the more desensitized you are to their manipulations. And so when something cuts through and works and still works after 25 years, 27 years, that's worth noting. That's high praise actually coming from you because that's quite true. I know I haven't seen as many movies as you Mm -hmm. have. I know that I'm not as well versed in cinema as you are. 
I do think of it as a wonderful movie, but t- coming from you, I think that's indeed high praise. Well, and this is why I was interested to write a book, uh, or to write a book, let's not overstate me, to write an essay <laughs> on um, adapting it because I knew that there were differing opinions out there, despite its its praise and its uh, Oscars and all that stuff. I knew that there were differing opinions about that, and I was interested in exploring them. Uh, when I spoke to Michael Ondaatje about it, it turns out he was not. You did not. Well, not... You Not don't. directly, but I attended, um, you know, the Tiff Bell Lightbox. I don't know if they do it anymore. They used to do the Books on Film series hosted by Eleanor mm. Wachtel. She would always have a special oh. guest to talk and to, you know, you would screen a film adaptation and then she would talk to a special guest. Now, I'm a huge fan of Eleanor Wachtel's. I do not want it to get around oh, any, yes. any other way. I mean, the, the work that she does on Writers and Company, the level of yes. recall and research she has on the show. She truly is a genius. I sassed her She's once brilliant. in the lineup at TIFF and she was, um, you know, lovely. I don't know that she brought a lot of her most, like a lot of her strongest firepower to these books on film series and who can blame mm-hmm. her, you know, cash the check and, 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 and you know, interview. <laughs> and it kind of felt that night with, she had Michael and Dace there for the screening of the English patient that she just wanted us to know that they were friends. I, that was kind of the impression I got. We, I didn't really get anything out of the book to film adaptation conversation. So I, during the Q&A, decided to ask a question because so much of my research when writing this paper, and I promise you, I did not mention in my question that I had written a paper on it or that I'd gotten an A plus mm. on it. <laughs> I did not mention this at all. I I, I only asked because I was genuinely curious because when I wrote this paper, there was so much writing and I found so much writing that I couldn't include that mm. had a very serious issue with this change in East to West perspective in the film adaptation. And I never found any quotes from him on it. I never found any feedback from him other than to say that he thought the movie was divine. He had this lovely lyrical sentence about it being a new dream or something. And I thought, well, you cash a Miramax check, you know not to say too much. (laughs) And also I, I fully understand someone not caring if a film adaptation isn't true to their novel. If you're happy with your work, you don't care what anyone else does to it. But I was curious to know if he had read this feedback if he responded to it in any way if he felt the need to respond to it in any way Hmm. so i asked that question in the most in as unpretentious a manner as i possibly could and uh he just stared at me and he said well i don't know what you're talking about (laughs) oh no that's so disappointing at least say something like oh i haven't read that that's interesting he they literally made me feel bad for attending and eleanor wachtel said the same well i don't know what you're talking about either and i said Okay. And then I sat down and then, you know, he signed my book after he was very nice. He's very nice. I've met him a couple of times. He yeah, comes across as a very but, nice, uh, kind person. But it was a, yeah, lovely an person. unpleasant experience to say the least, Linda. And, and yet you still love both the book oh, I'm and the adaptation. I'm that stuff. I'm not going to, I never take anything too personally. Plus uh, at a later books on film, I went to see one of my absolute favorites, which is not Canadian literature, which is Howard's End. And the director of that film was there and I got to speak to him and he was lovely. So it was fine. (laughs) So talk to me a little bit about the transition. Mm -hmm. We've already talked a little bit about what that shift is between the book and the film. But I wonder if you could speak a little bit more about the book itself and Mm -hmm. the film itself and like the nuts and bolts Absolutely. of the adaptation. Well, the two most important things to remember when approaching a film adaptation of a book, particularly if you're one of those people who gets incensed if it's not what you read, 
is that any film adaptation of a book is not a translation of a book. It's a reading of that book and you have to mm. take it as such. It is that director's reading of the book as well as all the other mm. collaborators. The experience of watching a film that involves interpretation by thousands of people cannot be the experience you have curling up on a subway seat. <laughs> it where, never will yeah, be. Yeah, where you get to create everything and that's part of the pleasure of doing that. A good example of this actually, again, not Canadian literature, I was recently uh, catching up with the My Brilliant Friend series based on the novels by Elena Ferrante that's on mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, those are those are those books are like some of the greatest stuff I've read in, I, I don't remember the last time I was that excited to get to a book as I was reading those. And then the show is good. I, it's worthy enough of those novels. I don't have any complaints mm-hmm. about it, but there are a lot of things where you know, that, that novel, part of what makes it so brilliant and expedient is the way that it's just actions and dialogue. She doesn't do a lot of psychologizing other than to explain how, how she as the main character feels about mm. things. And then when you're watching actors play these parts, interpreting that dialogue, mm. bringing a lot of emotional weight to that dialogue that is different from how I imagined it. Mm-hmm. You're reading, you're watching something very different from what you read, despite the fact that it's actually accurately translated. Isn't that another level of adaptation though? So you have the novel, you have the script that is then rendered from the novel, and then you have the actors who bring, as you say, this emotional weight. That seems to me a third level of interpretation. Yes, absolutely. So that's an important thing to remember. The other thing to remember is that what motivates a film adaptation of a book is generally financial and little else, which is that the book did well. Oh, And that's why we're making a film adaptation of it. And this is something I also thought about the other day because I was watching a movie, uh, also not Canadian literature, but I was watching the film adaptation of Tom Wolfe's The Bonfire of the Vanities. Oh, um, yes. Because I recently finished reading that novel for the first time. And the the film does not veer that much from the story, but if I was a film executive in the early 90s, I would have read that book and known that it wouldn't make necessarily a good film. But because it was such a huge runaway bestseller, they paid him the highest that had ever been paid for the rights to a novel in history. And then when the film came out, I mean, it's a pretty bad movie, but its disastrous reception was amplified by how much money had gone into buying the rights, making the movie, all that stuff. So a quick question here is, is that's public knowledge then how much an author is offered in order to transform a book into the screen? It can That's... be, yeah. Yeah, it can but be. But it, it isn't always. Yeah, and I don't know that it's uh, verifiable firsthand, so, like primary source mm. knowledge, or if it's something that leaks from head office, because I'm sure that the author themselves has to uh, sign an NDA of some kind. But I don't mm. know. I don't know. I think it gets around because usually they, especially if it's a popular novel, there's usually a bidding war. And so I don't think it's that easy to keep a secret as to what eventually wins so Mm -hmm. yeah i hear what you're saying i've i just occurred to me that i should have added to that opening list jane rules the desert of the heart which was transformed by donna deach she's a director she hired a screenwriter to turn it into a film that became desert hearts and is considered a an iconic film yeah, of the I've never seen that film i've never oh seen you that. absolutely must the one of That's the best helen scenes shaver, that, yes helen shaver correct yeah. and patricia charbonneau yeah. and the classic scene that does not appear in the novel but really captures the characters really well 
is this the the first encounter between the two main female characters. Yeah. It's great. It's not in the book, but it really captures who they both are in that moment. Yeah. Well, because what you're looking to do is to translate uh, the prose into a visual emotional experience, right? Uh, and that that can often be done well. And and I, of course, I have not asked, answered your initial question yet, which I will get to. But in The English Patient, what we have is something that may not have been fully motivated by finances. I don't know that this novel was such a runaway hit that everyone felt it needed a film adaptation the way like the way Gone Girl <laughs> did. But it certainly, you know, he was a popular enough writer that he would he would have lent himself to that being a good idea. And of course, this film was initially, The English Patient was initially a production under a major studio. I believe it was 20th Century Fox mm -hmm. that he was making it with, um, that he eventually parted ways with because they wanted big stars. He always wanted the cast that he ended up with. And they wanted like Demi Moore and people like that. And, and he held out. So they pulled out and he ended up working with Miramax who said, you know, we have less money to give you, but you can cast whoever you want. So, so these all play a factor hmm. into it. And then what is interesting is you have a very good example of a film that is the result of a reading of the text versus a translation of it. What does that mean for you? Well, he puts the novel literally into the film. There's a lot of dialogue in this movie that is actually on Dace's prose that was not written as dialogue in the novel. Mm. So when she says, when Julia Binoche says that lo that lovely line of lover, old, new lovers are nervous and tender and smash everything because the heart is an organ of fire. And then she says, oh, I love that. I believe that. <laughs> that and that's actually something that Andace writes in the novel. And then Antony Minghella said, I had her say, I love that because I loved it. And I wanted to celebrate his writing. So you literally have characters reading the novel in this uh, film, which I find very, very interesting. That's great. And there's a, a few examples of that in this book. You have, as I mentioned, the main change of Caravaggio's purpose of being in the novel, or a purpose of being in the novel and in the film. He is an English patient in the novel, more or less. He He's there to basically represent the colonial presence in that part of the world and to critique it. In the film, he turns him actually into more or less Lajlo Dalmashi, who was a real person who I read a biography of after, uh, well, after I read this novel. In real life, he was actually gay and he died in 1951. He did not die hmm. uh, crisping to death after a, a plane crash during the war. And nor did he fall in love with Kristen Scott Thomas, though as a gay man, I can tell you, I would totally have an affair with Kristen Scott Thomas. <laughs> Um, and oh, that's great. And uh, so that's uh, that's something that is a change that again changes the focus of the uh, novel. And then there's there's an example um, that I really love of how he he turns some very direct dialogue in the novel into something vague and much sexier in the film. So there's that wonderful oh. scene in the film where she, they're in the bazaar and she buys that beautiful red shawl. Um, oh yeah. That he tells her to bargain for. And in the novel, she actually, we kind of cut to the chase in the book where she's, there's actually a line where she says, if I gave you my life, you would drop it. Wouldn't you? That's very romantic. Um, and making it very clear that these two have a connection. While as in the film, this first major encounter between them is just them talking about a shawl. Everything else is happening in their eyes. 
the way that they are talking about one thing and meaning something else, because they're both trying to deny the fact that they are immediately into each other. And then we have the added visual element of this beautiful, beautiful red shawl. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know if it's that special as a shawl, but this whole movie is brown, right? Everything's in the desert and it's brown. And then at night, she mm-hmm. tells the the Herodotus, the Scheherazade stories by firelight against the brown backdrop of the desert. And you have this beautiful red shawl pop out. Mm-hmm. And Anne Roth won an Academy Award for the costumes of this film for many reasons. But to me, it's just always about that shawl. <laughs> I would have given it to her for, for no other reason. Yeah. I had forgotten about that, that she had won the award for that. She did. It was her first in a, and she was already, I mean, she's in her late nineties now. I think she's about 98. She's still working. She just won a second Oscar two years ago, was nominated this year, I believe. Um, So she's incredible. Uh, But, uh, but yeah, that was her first, her first award. We should probably make some time for Barney's version, but what else would you like to add, sure. if anything, about The English Patient? Other than just the fact that I want to say that I just really love this film. I love I love the Seinfeld episode making, <laughs> you know, making fun of people who love this film. I think it's a brilliant, brilliant episode. And I get why people don't like three-hour war epics, but I, I think every moment of this movie is for the way that it's so spontaneous and magical and for the fact that most of the settings are artificial in film studios in London. And yet it really looks like an Italian mm-hmm. villa, that church that he takes her to where she's hoisted up on the rope. That's an entirely mm-hmm. created set that looks like a real ancient chapel with frescoes in it. It's just marvelous. I completely agree. This is why it's made our short list. The next up on our short list, Barney's version. Well, this one I don't have too much to say about because, um, because it's actually been a while since I watched that film. I meant to rewatch it and I didn't get a chance and also because I don't really have very complicated feelings about this film or about this novel. This is a novel that I absolutely love. I haven't read enough Richler. I want to read more, but I really love this book. And I'm pretty sure I read it in my Canadian fiction class for Mr. Selecki, I believe. <laughs> Professor Selecki, I should say, I believe. But this is a really, really good example of not just a reading of the novel being in the film adaptation, but it just being the wrong movie. Oh, wow. Which is that it's actually a pretty good movie. I like this movie, but it's not the novel. No, it's not. No, Because they cut out that layer of narrative that justifies the title Barney's version, which makes no sense in this film mm. because there's no version. There's no other version. Mm-mm-mm. I was going to say, um, let's give the listeners a little bit of information just in case they haven't either read the novel or even seen the film. The novel published by Knopf is a first-person account, and it's written from the point of view of Barney. That's what, Bill, you've just been referring to. So it's a kind of an apology, and I mean this in an older sense of the word. It's a defense Mm -hmm. of his life. He is defending himself against another character by the name of Terry MacGyver, who is also writing an autobiography in which he's going to pan Barney. So Barney feels defensive. He has reason to feel defensive. There are two main reasons. One is that he's been married three times, and the third marriage is also a failure, but the wife he loves the most. The second reason is that there is a a character who has gone missing, and Barney was under suspicion. The character's name is Boogie. Barney is suspected of having been involved in his disappearance and purported murder, except that they never find Boogie's body. Mm So the charges drop. It's after that that he still marries his third and favorite wife, Miriam. But that stigma follows him around. 
added to this in the novel, which we don't get in the movie, added to this, there is the fact that Barney's memory is failing. He's suffering, I think, either from Alzheimer's or dementia. And so when you open the book, in the first couple of chapters, what we get are footnotes, because as we learn, his son has inherited the manuscript and has edited and footnoted the manuscript. So that means that there he's been running interference and possibly even changing the narrative. Can you tell I've read this novel and, by the way, have read everything that Richler has ever written? <laughs> oh, wonderful. He I mean, he's magnificent and and this this novel, it's its concerns are not that far afield from what he usually writes about, which is basically defending his flawed masculinity. Exactly. Which is something that he does better than anyone else did, but which but which is also really not in style anymore. It's not. I mean, this is this, this is partly why Woody Allen has be- become so passe. Aside from the disaster of his personal life, is that that's also what his work is all about, and no one wants to talk about that anymore. Exactly. Uh, and so this novel does not go far afield from what Richler usually writes about, but it's on an epic level in terms of the layers mm. of storytelling, the layers of narrative, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. It's fully understandable that you can't put that into a film. Uh, maybe a miniseries would cover exactly. it, but probably not. It's also impossible to believe that the the delicious humor that comes out of the way it's written could possibly be adapted. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't even fault the producers for deciding to do away with those layers. But what you're left with is something that's so different. Mm. Because all you, got, all you have in the film is his disastrous love life. And then you do get Boogie. You have... Boogie played by um, Scott Speedman, <laughs> who, I mean, I, I would I would yeah. sell my mother into to sniff him. He's gorgeous, but like Scott Speedman as a man named Moscow Moscovich is a lot is a lot <laughs> to deal with. But um, although he's wonderful, he's wonderful in the film. So you do have that story, and you do have, but the significance of Boogie is so different. The significance of the wives versus the significance of the love affairs is so different because we don't have him reflecting. Uh, on it as well as as you say unable to get a perspective on it due to the fact that his memory is failing and that he's filling in a lot Mm. of blanks with his own self-defensive insecurity basically Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. part of the problem for me with the film and the book is what you were already speaking about which is that kind of flawed masculinity and the, the ways that he delineates female characters right which are often very limited that said there's an autobiographical mm-hmm. component to both the novel and the film therefore which i also find interesting i actually met florence richler's wife and had the opportunity to interview oh. her and it became very clear the kind of role that she had in substantiating his career giving it that kind of groundedness so i i believe miriam is based on Florence. Well, she could hardly do better than to have, uh, I think it's Rosamund Pike playing her in the film. I yeah. know. The woman who uh, <laughs> buries her awards in the backyard because she thinks that uh, archaeologists will find them in thousands of years. Yeah, she's... Does she really do yeah, that? She's so relatable. Anyway. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I'd be burying my awards like a bone in my backyard. But the thing is, is that um, you don't have to bury things because they get covered in dirt after thousands of years anyway. Like when, <laughs> when archaeologists unearth villages now under the earth, it's not because they were put there. That's just how geology works. But anyway, that's far from the point. 
The point is, uh, no, I think I think you're absolutely right. And I think in the novels, it's also much more obvious that Richler is writing a character who, through his perspective, limits uh, the way he sees mm-hmm. women and their roles mm-hmm. because of his own conflicted desires about them. I think that that's mm-hmm. very obvious. And I think that's why he doesn't really rub a lot of uh, readers the wrong way in that regard, uh, because mm-hmm. there is always a sense of him taking account of himself as being unable to see them uh, in a more a complex way. That is that he does rub, he does rub people in the wrong way. So or readers in the or wrong that he, way. I, I feel that he, I think, I think that he doesn't. I think oh, I it's because when you're reading the book that you, it's obvious that, that this isn't necessarily oh, how the author feels about these characters, but how the character does. Mm-hmm. But yeah, ultimately I just think that I enjoy this film. I remember what, seeing it in the theater with friends and, and you know, the usual, did you like it at the end that we all ask each other when a movie's over and I said, yeah, I enjoyed it. But um, having read the novel, this is not that novel. Like, this is not an adaptation of that novel, despite it's using the characters in a lot of the scenarios. And having actors who are doing a pretty bang-up job of, like, embodying the characters as I imagined them in the novel as well. Particularly, Paul Giamatti is very, very well cast in the lead. And uh, just- I agree. I think that he was perfect. Yeah, perfect casting um, there. But it's just, it's just not that book. Right. So these are, this is another one of those instances when the film is actually quite different from the movie and they really become two different entities. Yes. So I I was thinking, I was thinking of the Jane rule instance that I gave earlier only because she was interviewed about the fact that the film was actually still quite different from the book. And her response was, it's a different artistic artifact. How do you feel about that? I think that that's true. And that's usually my response to when people get really emotional about a film not being as good as the book or not focusing on the things they want to focus on. Uh, A very humorous example is when Emma Thompson was working on the screenplay for Sense and Sensibility, which is, you know, one of the finest, Mm. finest film adaptations ever, ever created. (laughs) And is a screenplay that she worked on for like six years or something. She was on a train next to a woman who asked her, to whom I guess at one point she told her that she was working on this film. And she said, the woman said to her, well, how are you going to handle the basket scene with Anne? And Emma Thompson said, oh, I, I've cut Anne out of my adaptation. And the woman wouldn't speak to her for the rest of the oh, no, 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 no way. So sometimes people have things that are really, really, really important to them. And I don't really have much patience for that because at the end of the day, when a director is sitting down to edit the final cut of their film, they have to do what works for the film, not not to worry about, you know, fans of the novel and all that stuff. And Barney's version is a special case in, in, in the way that mm-hmm. I just think it's so far afield. But, you know, uh, but she is right that it is a different artifact and that to adapt that novel accurately would not make for anything that would make enough sense on film. Mm -hmm. Also, Mm -hmm. is it necessary? I mean, the book is what the book is and the experience of reading it is what it is. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, we could get into a whole discussion of why do we have adaptations in the first place? What is this need that we have once we've read a Mm -hmm. novel to then see everything dramatized outside of our heads and interpreted outside Mm -hmm. of our heads? Do we want to know if we were right in what we imagined? Or is it just the old story that we like to go see, we like to watch and read things where we already know the story? I mean, this is this is the case with ancient Greek theater, which is that everyone already knew the plot and it was a matter of, of how it was emotionally interpreted. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what what is the reason for this happening? You know, ultimately, I think a lot of it is just economic because movie producers want to make money and film book adaptations are a good way to do that. But 
in terms of an audience is bringing so much anticipation to a film adaptation. Um, there, there's so much to be explored in that. It's really interesting that there are times when I have felt that kind of keen disappointment mm-hmm. in an adaptation, but very rarely it does happen. I've watched a movie and thought they've accomplished such a great artistic work in and of itself that I think it almost surpasses the quality of the book. It could happen. I've seen some movies that I liked more than the novel. Uh, Carrie Fisher's Postcards from the Edge is one of them. Oh. Um, some people actually like the novel of Howard's End, or excuse me, the film of Howard's End more than E.M. Forster's novel. I think they're on par. Um, mm. So that, that can happen. But, you know, it happens more often. The thing that happens the most often is that the movie's okay. It's just not quite the experience of the novel. Kazuo Ishiguro's mm. Never Let Me Go is an example of this, which is mm. not a bad film. Remains of the Day. Remains of the Day. I mean, I think that film is extraordinary. I think that novel is extraordinary. I think those exactly. are also cases where the changes really do make a difference. Yeah, I agree. Um, I was thinking of Life of Pi because I actually prefer, and I know you haven't read the book, or I think, mm-hmm. I think you haven't read the book, but I actually prefer the movie over the book. And I do think Jan Martel is a superb writer, but not based on Life of Pi, for which he's been widely acclaimed in fact i think it's a short story collection it's called the helsinki rockamations which i think is exquisite but i didn't really like the novel that much when i saw the movie however it changed my mind well it's um that is a movie where the uh its aesthetic power really is uh strong enough to overcome I don't know that it has flaws. I don't find it a particularly interesting story, or at least not an interesting enough story Mm -hmm. to justify what feels like a very, very lengthy running time Mm -hmm. and so much effort in terms of the CGI, digital, dazzle, all that stuff. To me, it feels like one of those movies that's trying to tell me it's a lot smarter than it actually is in that (laughs) it sets up this, you know, he says, I'm going to tell you a story that makes you believe in God. Right. It's that statement in the the book that actually put me off. It was the very same thing. I thought that seems like a very presumptuous thing to say to anybody. Well, and I don't know that it pays off, at least in Mm. terms. And as far as I know, the the novel or the film ends, it doesn't really change anything substantially from the novel in this regard. Mm. and uh by the time you get to the end you're like oh this is what i've been waiting for it I, in the movie it just feels like a parlor trick basically that we find mm-hmm, out that mm-hmm. that this that this story that we've been taking literally is actually symbolic for something else and then this question of like which do you prefer i don't know did it make me believe in god i've been a happy atheist for a long time and <laughs> I, I continue to be one so i don't know <laughs> and so it fails in its mission So I want to give a quick shout out to James Healy for setting up the technology today at the studio at Concordia University and also to Jason Camlot, who's the Spoken Web Project Coordinator or Director. They have allowed me to use the studio today, and I appreciate that so very much. Bill, I especially appreciate you. Thank you for coming on today on Getting Lit with Linda. It was very much my pleasure. Thank you for having me and for letting me ramble for so long. <laughs> it was I love rambling with you. We're going to do this again. Thank I you so, so much. Okay. <laughs> and that was my conversation with Bill Antoniou. We'll return in two weeks, just in time for an episode exclusively devoted to Mother's Day. Thanks for listening, my dear listeners. That was Getting Lit with Linda, hosted by Linda Mora. If you have a topic you would like to hear covered, write to us at 
gettinglitwithlinda at gmail.com. Until next time, we hope you continue to get lit.